Would you freeze your head, Clive? No, I would not. What about you, Rich? Just the head? Well, that's a thing. I mean, I know your head. I don't think you should freeze it. Rich. Yes, Paul. People who write about technology, it's an unusual category of human being. They're mostly nice people. Mostly. Some could do a little bit better. But we have one of the nice and more thoughtful ones here today. We do. On the podcast, Clive Thompson. Welcome to Track Changes. Welcome, Clive. Good to be here. And thank you for that totally delightful sign-in. That's what we do. (laughs) Now, a little while ago, you did a thing namely finished and published a book, Mm. something I seem to be incapable of. (laughs) And the book is about something that we know very well, programmers. (laughs) But it's not called programmers. (laughs) It's called coders. What's the subtitle? What comes after the colon? The making of a new tribe and the remaking of the world. Oh, my Lord. Boom. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) exactly. Pow. Wow. Okay. (laughs) So what's this book about? What the hell made you decide you wanted to write about programmers? Okay, here's the reason why. It's because I've been been writing about technology and its effect on everyday life for like 25 years. You started Uh, at like the Canadian Wired, essentially. What was it called? It was called Shift Magazine. Shift, yeah. I remember Shift. It was like wired except weirder. In a good way. Like it was, you know, they would write articles about just weirdos doing weird web art and stuff. Is it frustrating as a Canadian that everything has a comparative in the United States? Like McGill, good college. It's the Harvard of Canada. You know why they think that? Because it sounds private. Mm. But they're all public universities. Right, because it's socialism. Socialism, exactly. Oh, is that true? Uh, mm -hmm. McGill is not a private university? No, no. It just sounds private. Yeah, no, there are these weird, hilarious analogs. I mean, I edited this thing called This Magazine, which is like Canada's progressive magazine. And I used to say it's like the nation, but funny. But (laughs) funny. Funny Funny and Canadian. Exactly. So yeah, we do wrestle with the constant we are the the sort of take-home game. If you can't actually play Wheel of Fortune, they give you the box game to take home. That's mm-hmm. the Canadian version. Of <laughs> but so many good things come out. Literally half the comedians that we love come from Canada. And deep learning. W- what do you mean? No, it came out of Canada. Deep learning? Yeah, sure. So dig this. They were working on deep learning. The big well, Tell the people what deep learning is. Uh, deep, so deep learning is basically the, the kind of hot new form of AI, where instead of writing down a bunch of individual instructions and rules, you know, if this happens, do that. You basically set up a system and you train it. You say, if you, if you wanted to recognize cats, you show it a million cat pictures. When it gets it wrong, you feed back that information and it readjusts all the little mathematical weights to say, hey, you know, all right, don't do that again. When it gets it right, you feed that back in, readjust it. After a million of those, it can now recognize a cat perfectly, right? That's deep learning. The idea of it had been around for decades, but no one really could get it to work. And th- they thought it was never going to work, except for the Canadian government that put a couple hundred thousand dollars into a few people. Canadian dollars. They asked for yeah. two million, it's, it's but yeah. the Canadian government yeah. was like, <laughs> "Exactly, listen, let's take it easy yeah. with this." Exactly. Okay, it's a stack of coins with loons on them, yeah, exactly. and they're just like, "Here, <laughs> it's also Canadian dollars, right?" Yeah, so, yeah. And, yeah and, and so that's all it took. They gave it to Jeff Hinton, long-term guy, been toiling away at the University of Toronto, Jan Lacoon, and a guy at the, I think it was the University of Montreal, and you know they cracked it. 2012, they went to the um, ImageNet contest, the kind of a shootout for uh, AI, and they killed it. And then Google was like, whoa, can we do that? The rest is history. So basically all the deep learning stuff, all the AI that fuels 90% of what Facebook and Google are doing came out of the Canadian government giving like scraps of money 
Thanks, Canada. Yeah, there you go. Nice. You know what's great for me right now is watching another professional technology explainer and watching your brain work because you feel alone having to explain this shit oh to everybody. God, You're just like, okay, I got to make somehow deep learning accessible to an audience. Oh, what the hell? It's a mathematical weight. Okay. No, yep. well, you, yep. cats. Yep. Cats. Cats. <laughs> cats. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I'm just watching your brain turn and it's like looking into a mirror because I, I have to do this too. And it, there's a part of you that dies when you do it, but there's no way other there's way. There's no way. I, I think we should actually just find a bar and find just, like the nine of us that do just, this. And just explain <laughs> technology. Only we can just understand fine. that horror. But and this is, comes back to what you asked. Why did I write the book? Well, you know, I realized after 25 years of writing about software that I'd sort of spent a lot of my time saying, okay, you know, here's how X, Y, or Z piece of software or social network is warping and deforming and reshaping everyday life. But the average person, you know, they could get that, but they had no idea where software came from. Right. You know, like it was as if it was just magic, like a UFO landed and disgorged sure. it. Mm-hmm. And they didn't understand that, you know, because it's made by humans, there's a whole ton of decisions made along the way, you know, what to do, what not to do. So I kind of wanted to say, all right, let's pull back the hood and show a little bit of what that culture looks like. And who are the obsessives and weirdos that decide it's really fun to sit around all day long. Actually, I was going to say telling machines what to do, but there's a wonderful, the best description of programming I ever heard was telling rocks what to think. Yeah, that's right. Literally a chemical substrate that has to light up. So that's that, that's why I decided to write the book, basically. I wanted to bring that stuff mainstream. Well, you know, there's a mass, the mass media way of approaching tech is to just focus on incredibly wealthy people who run companies. Right, yeah. And go like Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, and talk about like what they're up to. Yeah. And somehow that explains technology. And it's not. Well, you know. After writing this book, I mean, I, I tried to count it up. I think I there's like around 200 developers I sort of spoke to, you know, ranging from uh-huh. hanging out with a bunch of them at a bar at a conference to like talking for hours to one person to profile them. And so one of the things I was trying to do is what are the actual common threads in what makes them tick, why they like this, you know, why they get into it. And, you know, some of the things people think are like kind of, you know, maybe kind of obvious, like they're, you know, they're, they're very logical thinkers. Well, you know, they, they have to be, you know, you, if you can't think systematically and logically, you're not, this isn't going to work out very well. So that was this obvious stuff. But what actually kind of intrigued me was kind of the un, more unexpected things, right? I think actually, Paul, you and I might have talked about this at some point in time, was I began to realize and where I talked to them that these are people who have a ability to endure a grinding level of frustration that's like an order of magnitude higher than most normal human beings can handle. Yeah, you know? My joke is always that someone who works in this field, if they have a callus on their finger from reloading yeah, over exactly. and over again, right. like it's just you just you have to get into a zone where you can look at something five or six hundred times over and over and over again over the course of a couple hours right. and just incrementally change or update it. Exactly. And that's because, again, what people don't get about the writing of software is they have all these images in Hollywood of someone sitting down and Typing, away. Yeah, and it just pours out. And they don't know what I think everyone working for you guys knows, which is that actually what you're doing is fixing broken stuff. Like literally something you just, you function you just wrote already isn't working. It's not passing its tests. And then there's a code base you inherited, uncommented weird COBOL from 20 years ago, and you got to figure that out. So basically the, the daily life of most developers is just sitting around staring at things that don't work and somehow being able to smash their forehead through the wall to get that. And, and I, found, I found that kind of existentially interesting. Like, also what it does to you. You talk to the ones who are like 40 years in, uh, you know, versus the ones that are five years in. But even the stuff that does work, a good, curious engineer still thinks that's not the best that's way right. to do it. That's right. And that's the flip side of the other thing I found, 
is like, you know, okay, so there's all this diversity, definitely, in in the psychologies and personalities. Introverts, extroverts, you know, all sorts of stuff. It's not like the sort of shoe. It's not just the introverts. It's not just the shoegazers. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. There's this idea that it's all a bunch of shoegazers. not true. But what were the things that really were true nearly, nearly across the board? One of them was kind of what you just said, which is this desire to constantly tweak and improve and render more efficient and more optimized. Oh God, right? they're, it's, they're yeah. annoyed by everything. Yeah, I have, the, I have this chapter called The Cult of Efficiency. Mm-hmm. And it's basically like, Everyone would tell me about how it happened early on, like in their learning to program where they, they sort of realize, oh, Christ, computers are really good at taking these repetitive actions and this sort of annoying things that are being done slowly and speed them up. And then they just start developing this x-ray vision. They can't turn it off. Like everything they see, they needs want to, to get more, efficient. needs to get more efficient, needs to get faster. Right. You know, like this one woman who worked for Zillow was <laughs> like, we were hanging out in San Francisco and she's like, on the way here, I was standing at the corner and watching people cross the street. And I almost felt like screaming at them because I thought they were doing it in like a suboptimal way. Like mm-hmm. here is that <laughs> she's like, I'm, <laughs> I'm out of my mind. Right. You know, <laughs> like, eh, San Francisco. I think people would welcome it. Maybe true. This all makes sense. Yeah. Uh, what, what else? What, mean, what are some of the other high points? Yeah. Like, um, well, what were you looking for? I was looking for the stuff that would not just help people understand the people, but understand the decisions they make architecturally and engineering wise that kind of result in the downstream effects that we live with, right? And this is actually why the efficiency obsession would turned out to be unexpectedly interesting and productive as an explanation. Because I, the more I began to look at it, the more I began to talk to people, you begin to see that like that sort of desire to optimize, speed up, tweak is fractal across not just the great things that software gives us, but like a lot of the really weird externalities that we're living with, right? You know, so like on the good side, it's like, okay, Microsoft Word, I'm old enough to have written essays with a manual typewriter, right? And that was a very <laughs> inefficient process. It was gruesome. So Microsoft Word comes along and says, we're going to automate a lot of the blocking and tackling. And suddenly I can actually think in a, literally think in a better fashion, a smoother fashion, sure. right? That's your upside for efficiency. One of the downsides is, you know, companies that are now like saying, well, let's let's render efficient basic everyday activities, you know, the ordering of food, the ordering of cars, how we allocate of of people, of people, Airbnb, like here's an empty room. Could we optimally uh, match this with need? And it all kind of starts off like you're like, that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. But then holy Moses, when the rubber hits the road, you begin to realize that the everyday world of people doesn't respond so well to being optimized all the time. And it's kind of almost, I began to realize I'd stumbled into the er problem of all software, you know, whether it's a newsfeed, you know, like the newsfeed's trying to, was literally an optimization ploy. It was Zuckerberg saying, I want to make it faster for people to see more stuff of what everyone's doing. Mm -hmm. First blush, that was great. Like suddenly you had this ESP, you knew everything that was going on in the world. It felt great. But, you know, they had to start algorithmically sorting that stuff. You know what it is? I think about this a lot. You start to see the world in data structures. Yeah. And so you go, oh, everything's a list. And when you talk to people from the West Coast and they look at media and think about like, you know, what is the New York Times to the West Coast? It is a feed. It is a list of yes. articles in chronological order yeah. with tags for sections. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you say that to the people of the New York Times, they're like, you are missing an animal. all right. of the subtlety yeah. that goes into organizing and juxtaposing and looking for connections. How many times has some technological idea come forward to fix media? Again, they and can't, again, it is, and then they start these consortiums, and then this little star Startup shows up. Man. Is there like, anything that tech wants to fix more than media? Maybe healthcare? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, no. Like personal wellness is the other one. Yeah, personal wellness. Uh, and, and dying. Dying, yeah. yeah they the wanna, ultimate inefficiency. They want right? to stop yeah. dying. Yeah, they want to stop dying. Please. Is this all bad? 
like Uber, Airbnb. Yeah, I, again, like I think it's frequently very good, right? Like, I mean, any economist would argue and many people in the world of culture would argue. Well, let's not that, leave it to the economists to I, determine uh, what's okay. good or bad. But all, right, all I was going to say is that like the progress of civilization has been in creating ways to let individuals punch above their weight by doing more with less. You right. Know? Mm-hmm. I, can cut so. down, I can cut down a tree by holding a chainsaw up against the tree. Exactly. That's yeah. a hell of a thing. It used to take me like a whole day. Yeah, there you now go. I can cut down right. a forest. I can, I can kill <laughs> by pigeons. Yourself. So this is good. Kill squirrels. Is this good? Good and I bad. I can't tell Here, if it's good or bad. Good and bad are very reductive terms. Shit gets weird at scale and humans are a mess. Aha. Now, scale, that's the other thing I found, which is super interesting, which is alongside obsessions with efficiency, a lot of developers are super obsessed with scale, right? Oh, nobody even wants to build anything for for like just for an individual to use and enjoy anymore. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I know you can sympathize with why, right? Like once you've solved the problem for yourself with software, there is almost zero marginal cost and rolling that out to the rest of the planet. And there's something exciting about that. Like I chatted- Well, that's also where all the revenue is. The revenue, yeah. Yeah. There's also impact, right? Right. You get a high out of that impact on the world. That's the thing. I chatted with Ryan Olson, who is an Instagram engineer, literally two days after they launched Stories, right? So Mm -hmm. we're hanging out in the office. And he was like, he was completely burned out because they'd gone on some, you know, three week long march of not sleeping. But he's like, yeah, like, he gets in the subway the day after they launch it. He's looking around and everyone's like using stories. He was literally like, I can't even understand how to process that feeling that I've done this thing. Mm-hmm. And suddenly and like people around the damn planet. And it was a small team. Like it yeah. was like, you know, five engineers working yeah. on that, right? You know? It's probably no, the had, same feelings. As Snapchat Dick- did all the product management for him. <laughs> Sorry. Zing. Zang. Just a little there memory, a yeah, little yeah. memory going back. I think that's power. It's called power. It it's the same power. feeling a dictator feels mm-hmm. on the balcony when he's given that speech. That is not how the engineers at Instagram feel themselves, like on a little balcony. I think the fact that you've (laughs) injected your opinion, creation, into everybody's lives in such an intense and profound way is very empowering. It's it's just, it feels, let's put aside whether... It's good or bad, or well, it's a better wonderful. for you, or worse for you. It's a wonderful feeling. I've had it. You feel sure. like I put yeah. my. It's thumb- like a high. You get a high out of I it. I put my thumb on a little bit. The world's a little different because I'm here. Yeah, yeah. Totally. So it's a good feeling. Writers do that. Yeah, and frankly, again, like a lot of the time, this has been, I would argue, to the benefit of the human race. Basically, I mean, really, I think what I came to, I began to realize, is one of the problems we've got. Is you ask Rich, is this good or bad? The real answer is we actually have, I I think socially, culturally, economically, we have pretty good ways of recognizing the advantages of efficiency and optimization. We have really no language that's very good for talking about the occasional or advantages of friction and inefficiency, right? We don't have as many paradigms for talking about that. And so it's why actually there's this guy that Dave Guarino, terrific developer for uh, Code for America, mm-hmm. with his team, when they're rolling stuff out and it's affecting like, you know, like food stamp recipients, you don't want to screw that stuff up. He was like, automate as little as you can. Yeah, of course. Hmm. Like of course. slowly figured out. He would do all these Wizard of Oz protocols with live products because he wanted to know. What's inc- a Wizard of Oz protocol? Uh, that's where like the software looks like it's doing it but really humans doing it. You know, the first thing was what they were handed was this 50 page nightmare of an unresponsive site for applying for food stamps that no one could actually use on their Android phone. They couldn't go in and tear it down. So they had to build something on, put a layer of crud on top of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So they basically just put a little responsive page 
And they would ask people like five questions that would give them 80% of what they needed. And they would get that. They would manually enter it and they would call the person up and they would finish the process. So it was Wizard of Oz. Like the person thinks using software and they get a phone call from their team and they slowly figured out how to automate the rest of it. Mm -hmm. And his whole goal was move slowly and only automate what you need to when you need to. Produce is a really because great you can product. cause damage if you, you go too fast. damage if you go too fast. This is real. I, I remember talking to someone who worked in juvenile justice, and they had put a default setting in that ended up keeping a kid in jail overnight because it had sort of rolled around twenty four hours, and it was like not the greatest tragedy in the world, but it was extremely serious. Yeah, sure. Like they were like, okay, we have to address this immediately, and it was yeah. like a yeah. full stop moment because that the ramifications are so real. Yeah, like it's not like every oh boy they didn't get their pictures in a timely. Manner. Manner. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. No, a kid stayed overnight in a juvenile justice facility. Most of the time, technologists don't bother. They just go. <laughs> and they're like, yeah. let's see. Whoops, what did I just do to Syria? The, yeah, I mean, the flip side of the power of software to like have that big impact is, yeah, you can, <laughs> you can do something pretty bad pretty easily, right? Some of my favorite things in the book was actually just asking people, so what's your worst bug story? Mm-hmm. Oh my God, it was so much fun. I could have just done an anthology of the worst bugs. I bet. People had mes- what's, what's the worst bug you guys have had? Early days, I destroyed 30,000 fantasy sports accounts for basketball fans. I, I didn't know how to update the database and I shouldn't have been <laughs> in that position. This is like 97. Yeah. And uh, we were able to roll it back. I had to send a lot of emails and there were a lot of people around me who mm. had delegated to me going like, okay, okay, okay. We, we, we knew you shouldn't have done this and we let you do it anyway. Okay, okay. Money bugs are the worst. I mean, mm. it's like I'm building a transactional system that's touching bank accounts. Right. And whoops, it's just like, one line off, yep. but that one line, the cascade effect is huge. And when you've got to think about all of that, right? I will say that of the category of my worst bug, oh my God, 80% of them are database. Like, oh my God, sure. I did and it wasn't backed up. No, we didn't. It, it wasn't transactional. We didn't beastly it, yeah. gone. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing is if you follow the rules, the rules are actually set up like turn on backups Use full transactional behavior in your database so that you can roll things back. Yep. If you follow the rules, you actually can't get into too much trouble no. because everybody makes the same mistakes, but no one will follow the rules. Some of the bugs are kind of fun, though, like where it's like it's not fatal, like nothing's being destroyed, but they just did, didn't anticipate a form of user behavior. And now it's super weird. Right. Mm-hmm. So Lance Ivy, early architect of Kickstarter, basically kind of built front and back and all by himself. As he told me, I should have let someone else help me for a long time, you know, that type of thing. Yep. And their first one kind of million dollar thing blew up, right? So it's going to a million dollars. And this is kind of early, exciting for the for early Kickstarter. Sure. It was some guy, I think he was doing a video game or something. The campaign was getting there and everyone was having these like, these moments where they were like all the supporters around the world were all sitting there refreshing the page nonstop because yeah. they wanted to see it go roll to a million. Well, unfortunately, that was like essentially a, a denial of service attack on Kickstarter with all these people refreshing. And so the server's like redlining and redlining mm-hmm. and they're and it's going down and they're taking it back up and going and taking it back up because they hadn't yet made a really simple refresh that didn't require the refresh of the whole page. Sure. Right? Nowhere did they think that the cultural behavior of Kickstarter was going to be, oh my God, I want to see it roll to a million. And so that was a terrifying night for them, right? So there's a lot of fun stories like that. You know, the thing that I think about, like nothing is easily good or bad is 
agriculture. People are like, everything must be organic. And it's like, well, if everything's organic, this whole continent's going to starve. Yeah. This kind of modified rice is what people need in order to Because we can do it themselves. at scale, basically. Yeah, we can do that at scale. And it works, and it is efficient, and it's good to go. At the same time, there's all sorts of things with giant modern agribusiness that aren't good for people, right? And so it's like balancing that out, but you can't sit down and say everything must be organic. No, exactly. As with efficiency, where you kind of need a new language to talk about, all right, so when is inefficiency good? When would you want to actually engineer it in? The other question is, when is scale good and when is it just going to break stuff, right? Mm -hmm. That's another thing that we we don't have a lot of language to talk about. What things are like massively improved by scale? What things are kind of wrecked by scale? And I think what one thing, the er lesson of a lot of social media is certain forms of human conversation just break when when you try and do them at scale, basically. You know, yeah, I, no, I'm, sure. I'm sure you guys find this all the time in the work you're doing in media, right? I mean, it's, it's an easy one, right? Because Facebook is fine when you have 20 friends and it's with 700 people that you're connected with through all of your different aspects of life and some professional, some family, it's almost unusable. It just locks up. And it's kind of funny, like you talk to Twitter people who've been around since the beginning and they're all like, oh, the first two years was great. Well, that's because it was small scale. And sometimes I've wondered, like, is is maybe that just some maybe that's like an iron law of social media? Like, you just need to keep on churning out new ones because the first two years, when it's small scale, will be great, and then it's just going to be like a tire fire afterwards. Yeah. I, maybe that's just the way it goes. It's a couple hundred people with similar inclinations. Twitter is now an ongoing national referendum on absolutely everything, and so you can't really participate in that unless you're willing to be part of the referendum. Right. Right. And yeah. so you that's, can observe. You can lurk. Most people lurk. You know, I put out silly jokes and, you know, just sort of have my fun there and, you know, promote stuff. But like you can't, I don't want to get into the conversation because it's just endless. Well, well, and you created that little temporary community, right? What was that? Tilda Club. Tilda Club. What does that mean, Tilda Club? And this is kind of a deep cut from the Paul Ford archive. Tilda Club is a single Unix server with lots of different accounts. You can have an account on any computer, right? You know how if you're using a Mac and it's like, here's your guest and here's you? That would actually scale to 500 people. You could plug that into the internet and you could say, like, anybody wants to connect to this. And you could send each other mail just on that machine. You're getting a command prompt. This to is a Unix built into every computer okay. in 2019. It's so, just, what are people going to do with it? Oh, you can make web pages, have accounts, and email to one another. All Got the things it. you do on a social network are okay. basically right. Facebook and Twitter and everybody, those are all riffing off of things that used to exist 25 years ago. Right, right. Built into the system. It's a tiny social network run by Paul Ford. Right. It, that was the original yeah. form of it. And then it kind of, it blew up and then but it But these are implied. small and, and quaint and nice, but like obviously <laughs> it reaches a point where if someone feels like, oh my God, I can actually influence other people. They want scale. Well, they, who doesn't? You're a writer. Yeah. Right? That's yeah. success. Like, scale exactly. is often associated with success. Yeah. It's the hockey stick yeah. chart, right? Or yeah. whatever you want to call it. Do they feel bad? You went into this coder yeah, world yeah. Do now. Do feel bad about what, what, what happened? Well, they screwed up the world. The world is a mess. <laughs> it's a sloppy mess. We can't have elections anymore. And it's their fault because they thought it was really would be really cool to give everybody a news feed. They're divided down the middle. Half of them feel bad. They are self-reflective about it. They're like, oh, wow, we were naive. Maybe optimistic about how humans work. I think I, Twitter in particular, the Twitter crew went on and a lot of them looked in the mirror and went, right. like, touched what their What have yeah. we done? Yeah. So that's that half. The other half... Half, they're being paid too much money to confront it. They have too much power. It's, oh, it's, yeah. it's like that old, st- you know, you can never convince someone of a fact if their job requires them not to understand right. it, basically. Yeah, it's know. like Upton Sinclair, H.L. Mencken, yes, or somebody. Exactly. One of those. Denial. The half that I think are like, 
the ones that Paul said, looking in the mirror and kind of going, oh man, and they have like a sweat mustache. Mm-hmm. They kind of got out and they're doing something else and they can be reflective about it. Well, they got out. Yeah. That, and, and that's critical when so you're left there. the tribe. And the other ones that are there or moved on to like another big company and are kind of, they have a lot more trouble, I think, being talking turkey about it. I think that you really do believe if you, there is a price point for someone who, for everyone to believe something. Like there is a price point. I could yeah. make you believe all sorts of things, Rich, for the right number. Oh my goodness! Mm. I think that's pretty much Postlight's mission <laughs> that statement. Mission. That's a high. <laughs> it's a high number. Mine was a lot lower when we got started. It keeps going up because it used to be like, Paul, here's fifty dollars. Please believe everything about capitalism is good. And I was like, okay. And now, <laughs> now I'm like, mm, it's going to take a lot more than that. Do, do, do they feel like they kind of? not just feel bad, but almost got it wrong. I mean, look, yeah, yes, yeah, we yeah. can recognize the cat. I think yeah. that's awesome. Sure, the computer yeah. can recognize the yeah, cat, yeah. but there's still, you know, thousands of people in the Philippines looking at pictures mm-hmm. of images posted on Facebook because they can't solve that one. Okay, here's where I would take that. Obviously, I spent a lot of time doing a, like a postmortem on social media because people care about that. But if you wanted to say right now, who are the engineers who are looking in the mirror or should be looking in the mirror and going like, Okay, what are we doing? It actually is a lot of those deep learning people because they're working on systems. You know, anyone that's working on facial recognition at this point in time mm. should probably be looking in the mirror and going, "What the hell? What are am we I unleashing?" Doing? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like stuff like that. It, where where well, this like, is also one where it's not like they can look back ten years from now and go, "How could we, how ever, could we ever have guess? known?" Yeah, everyone's very excited to apply this technology in all kinds of places where it's going to mess with civil liberties. Yeah, but, yeah, precisely. But the train's left. The train is left, and so some people say, well, I don't want to necessarily roll the state of the art forward, but in China, they are rolling it forward gleefully and rapidly with government money and with government having these data sets of billions of shots of faces that they hand back and forth between industry. They're going to be the world masters at this stuff. We yeah. should we should at least know how to do it as well as they do. Moral slip in an arms race. If we don't have it, they'll have it. Really, literally, it's not, like nukes. And frankly, right? it's not necessary. It's not wrong. It seems very likely that China will continue to invest vast resources yes. in good and efficient facial recognition. And so, as a nation state, do we have a response? Right. And now you're like, well, here we go. Like mm. we need to do a congressional hearing, and Amazon's going to show up and say we're ready to help. And don't you need socks? I mean, the truth is, <laughs> you looked at facial recognition and in Congress. Maybe yeah. you need a nuclear a weapon and a hat. <laughs> you need a hat. Oh, God. It's going to start selling us congressmen. If the EU and the US both jointly ban face recognition in like a bunch of consumer cases, that would have a strong global effect because you right. can't, if you can't sell that stuff here, then that would curtail some of China's growth stuff. Mm-hmm. But that type of coordinated political action is difficult to envision. It's getting it's harder and harder it's to, not yeah, to the, get that kind it's of It's not a moment where you could get a quick outcome. Exactly. Well, Tell good. me something good. good give me a fun. give me a feel. Let's close this with a feel good story. It's a marketing This is podcast. dark. Here's, here's <laughs> the coders are charming. And then it was like, we're going down. Some fun stuff. One of the things I would get people, I'm writing this book about coders and a lot of people who are not developers would say, so should I like learn this? Yeah. This is the type of thing where I like should give up my my job in media or everything is we dying. We hear that a lot. My, yeah, exa- yeah, I'm sure you do. And so the answer that I said it came up with was if you're, if you're beyond a teenager, you're probably not going to shift your career around this type of thing. You're, you're not going to work at it hard enough. But if you're an intelligent person with a bit of free time and the ability to apply yourself, 
you can kind of learn a little bit of it. And it turns out that knowing a little bit is weirdly fun and even becomes quickly useful in your personal life. So, you know, I, I learned a lot of basic and stuff when I was a kid. I didn't do much programming when I was in my 20s or 30s. In my 40s, I started doing more of it so I could talk knowledgeably to the coders I'm talking to. But just like stuff for like hobbyist projects. But, oh my God, I started discovering all these weird, fun things that were useful for me. Like, so my book comes out. And what does an author do when their book comes out on the first day? Usually they sink into despair and <laughs> start to panic right, and, and yeah. then no one will tell them how the book is okay, selling. And because they won't tell you how the book is doing, what you do is you sit there at your Amazon page, refreshing it every five minutes to see if it has appeared on any bestseller. Yeah, why lists, would a right? human being do that? Clive? That's just sounds... do that. And, and you do that every five minutes for the whole day until you pass at it like in the evening. And then the next morning you show up, or at least I did, going, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to actually get work done. And of course, every five minutes you press a browser. So after my third day of solid day of this, I'm like, okay, this is ridiculous. It's also a repetitive behavior that I can outsource. So I just wrote a quick scraper, scrape the page, find any information about the list I'm on and text it to me. This robot will do it for me. And sure enough, it kind of cured me. I sure. stopped doing it. And uh, so what I tell people is like, you're probably not going to quit your job and become a developer, but it's pretty easy to learn just enough Python to do that. And then there's all these weird little fun things you can kind of do in your daily life. And it also kind of gives you, Paul and I have talked about this. It's more fun than writing. It's more fun. It's probably more fun. If, you, if you're an accountant, it's probably more fun than being an accountant. If yeah. you're in hospitality, it's probably more fun than being in hospitality. So it's, it's sort of a fun thing to do with your brain. It's very satisfying. Very satisfying. Little game. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like there are a few things that and give it's you. never done. It's never, never done. done. You can always uh, yeah. make it a little bit better. Always make it a little better. So that's, this is the craft and the art and the delight of programming that I encounter with all the coders I talk to that I, I do just enough in my daily life to really enjoy and treasure. Like I actually look forward to it. And so that's, if you wanted an upbeat note to end on, I tell people, go out and learn a little bit of Python and then and see what that feels like. I Let's love this little bit of Nothing advice. wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. The whole that. world might be having it's going through a pickle, but you can still have a little Python. Yes. yes. Get your little robot doing what you want it to do. There's actually a pun in there. You know that? And it didn't mean there to be. The Python uh, serialization format is called Pickle. Pickle. Mm -hmm. That's really funny. Yeah, it's that's really some great. great material. Well, on that note, uh, on that, we tried to end on a high note, and then you had to come back really to throw that in this whole end. thing out the window <laughs> at this point. Very cool. I don't even know who I am. <laughs> Clive Thompson has written a book called Coders. It's been out for a while. We he's here as a friend, not really to market, and it's it was great to have a nice conversation about what in the world is happening with technology and programming. And Today. the world of coders. Oh, my goodness. People can just buy this thing on Amazon. And all yeah. That. Where would you prefer they buy it? You know, actually, I say buy it anywhere that you're normally buying books. That's you know? right. Yeah, okay. just, just don't, don't sweat it. Just, you know, okay. although if you do buy it, I'll know because my robot is going to text me my sales rank every day. Claude, well, thank you so much for doing this. This was great. Great to be here. Rich. I love coders. Yeah, me too. I, I like making the thing. And I'm I, okay. I'll forgive them. If just, okay, so what? I'm increasingly accepting that even though I don't get to make the thing, creating an environment in which good software can be built is a valuable use of time. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's, it's really important. Yes. But I got to put my ego away. I don't get to make it anymore. But well, we like, get to work with great people. We do. We it. get to work with better programmers, product managers, and designers than I ever was. Than we'll ever be. Yeah, that's true. Yes. Well, and they work you know, at Postlight, Paul. They do. And you know what? You can build a relationship with them over time because we are your product partner at yes. Postlight. The three Ps. Reach out. Hello at postlight.com. All you got to do, you got to send an email and we will 
read that email and do the best we can to help you. We want to make it work. So get in touch if you've got something to build and if you're looking for a company that can really stand by you as you build and ship your products and your platforms over time. That's us. Let's get back to work. Have a great week.